This is Quiet Revolutionaries, a podcast based on my book about a little-known group of feminist activists in the mid-20th century, and how they helped to shape the idea of equal partnership in relationships. I'm Dr. Sharon Thompson, a law lecturer at Cardiff University, where over the course of this podcast series, I've explored the intriguing and sometimes shocking story of the Married Women's Association. I've been trying to uncover how this group's attempts at reform, sometimes successful, but mostly unsuccessful, nevertheless created unexpected ripples that connect to fundamental principles of equality today. This is the eighth and final episode. In 1950, Lord Denning, a judge whose name is still familiar to law students all around the country, declared that women were now equal to men at a potential cost to society. He said, The wife is now indeed the spoiled darling of the law, and the husband the patient packhorse. But were women equal to men in 1950? Well, no. Denning was not alone in the view that wives were in a privileged position and husbands were the ones unfairly burdened in marriage. The Married Women's Association was told that women getting a share of the family property were gold diggers, even by some of its former members, as we heard with Doreen Gorski in episode 5. They were told this in spite of the hard evidence of women's inequality. And this continues to resonate loudly today. There is concrete data showing the financial inequalities persisting between men and women in divorce right now, yet women continue to be told they're gold diggers and are getting a meal ticket for life. The context of the Married Women's Association might be different, but its campaigns are still relevant today. In this final episode, I want to reflect on the legacy of the Married Women's Association. So far, we've seen how it influenced the law and property during marriage, through reforms such as the Married Women's Property Act 1964, another massive achievement of which a large part can be attributed to Edith Summerskill is the Matrimonial Homes Act in 1967. Matrimonial Homes Act spearheaded by Edith Summerskill was invaluable in that it gave deserted spouses a legal right of occupation in the matrimonial home. As Edith Summerskill's daughter-in-law Marley LaFollette, who was a family lawyer, told me, Dr. Edith, they all knew her. In the old days, everybody knew her. And of course, one of the things when I started practicing, 1967 Matrimonial Homes Act. I mean, that was a very important. Women would come and say, oh, I'm not an owner in the house. Will he he kick me out? I mean, that would be one of their first questions if the house was not jointly owned. And I think, yes, thanks to my mother-in-law, you're fine. You know, it affected everybody's life. Still, it didn't provide a wife with a proprietary interest in her home. Nevertheless, these were just some of the subtle yet really important ways in which the Married Women's Association influenced women's legal rights in the 20th century. As a non-party group, emphasising the language of equality and welcoming men into its fold, the Married Women's Association was clearly attempting to avoid the men versus women narrative, stating it was, quote, most definitely a man and woman group, and as such was an outstanding example of full partnership, it said. 
Members also understood that successful legislative reform would hinge upon support from those in power, who were nearly all male. The issue of equality in marriage therefore needed to be seen as an issue of justice for everyone. And so the challenge for the Married Women's Association was not to stop individual controlling and abusive behaviour in marriage. Instead, it was to find a way of reforming structures through legislation so that the law could limit the damage these individuals could do. This suggests the Married Women's Association wasn't inefficient. It was pragmatic. Legislation was needed because the law had failed married women. By achieving legal and economic equality inside the home, so the Married Women's Association argued, women would be better equipped to pursue equality also in the public sphere. As Married Women's Association founder Juanita Francis put it, I'm not asking for protection. I'm asking for legal rights in hard cash. In the context of family law, this was radical and had huge significance. Unlike the feminists of the women's liberation movement from the 60s and beyond, the association didn't seek to tear down the sex-segregated spheres of housewife and breadwinner. Yet their housewife-centred approach drew out central tensions of family law. Rather than dealing with how married women can move away from gendered roles like childcare to do the same work as men, the Married Women's Association placed focus on the fact that in the 1940s and 50s, this was the work married women were doing. And so without properly valuing care, housewives' economic vulnerability would be intensified. As the Married Women's Association saw it, married women's work was not valued. When the association formed, married women had no rights over their husband's separate property, little opportunity to earn money outside the home, and they depended on their spouse for housekeeping allowance. But Married Women's Association members were often personally ambivalent about the notion of marriage as a career, and it's particularly notable that several of the leaders were high-status professional women with careers themselves. For example, as Ida Summerskill's grandson explained, Almost certainly one of the things that affected how she was perceived and it is what distinguishes her from a lot of the small number of female parliamentary colleagues she had, was that she was also completely open all the time about actually not just being a feminist and being married, but about pursuing her career at the same time as she had small children. And when she turned up, and in those days they used to photograph new MPs after by-elections turning up at Parliament the day after. And she actually turned up essentially for the photographers, the record is there, with Michael and Shirley, who at the time were, I think, 10 and 8. And our grandfather was, you know, 100 yards away. And clearly that was very deliberate. She was saying publicly, I'm a working mother with small children and I intend to pursue not just one career but two careers. And certainly my grandfather's view, who often burnt sacks of hate mail that she received without giving it to he told me this after she died, his view was that one of the reasons she was demonised, and she quite often was demonised in quite unpleasant way, in the public space, sometimes by newspapers, sometimes just by political opponents was precisely that she was a working mother and that was what people found so threatening and upsetting. So 
Married Women's Association members emphasise the value of housewives' labour in pursuit of marriage as an equal partnership, often while campaigning within other women's organisations for equal pay and better rights outside the home too. These efforts, though relatively arcane within family law history, were vital for their time and add important context to current debates too. Even today, the question of how to value unpaid care and domestic work in the family home remains at the forefront of family law reform. Unpaid caregiving continues to be both ubiquitous and invisible. Married Women's Association was distinctive from other women's organisations of the mid-20th century, as it took reform of family property law as its chief focus. When the Married Women's Association was at its largest in the 1940s, it still had only 2,000 members, which is tiny in comparison with other contemporary women's organisations, such as the Women's Cooperative Guild, which had nearly 60,000 members in the early 1950s. With gaps in membership records, it's not possible to know how far the Married Women's Association membership extended beyond its core leadership in later years. There were frequent complaints about numbers and resources, which suggest members wanted the association to be bigger and richer. However, its membership boasted some powerful women. Considering its size, then, it's extraordinary how much the association achieved, and this was also observed by Married Women's Association members themselves. For example, the group spearheaded the Maintenance Orders Act 1958, which enabled maintenance to be deducted from the defaulting spouse's pay packet. In other words, if husband and wife separated and the wife depended upon the husband paying her maintenance after that separation, but the husband was failing to do that, there wasn't really very much that the wife could do to make sure that that money was paid. And this act, the Maintenance Orders Act 1958, went straight to the source of the husband's income and meant that the wife could get her maintenance deducted from the paycheck at the source. This act was prompted by a Married Women's Association campaign and by a bill that had been drafted by Married Women's Association members. So they were behind this reform which really made a difference in economic terms to women. Then, as I explored in episode 7, the Married Women's Property Act 1964, which gave wives a one-half share in housekeeping savings, represented the first and only statute that allocated rights and property during marriage. As the default in English law is still separate ownership of property during marriage today, this 1964 Act continues to be an anomaly. It was a stepping stone towards the Married Women's Association's ultimate ambition of equal sharing during marriage, a destination that was never reached. It's easy to overlook these legislative developments when they are described as piecemeal, and that's because they address only a tiny aspect of married women's grievances and, in hindsight, appear neither radical nor controversial. On the one hand, the Married Women's Association's campaign to reform the enforcement of maintenance payments didn't secure any additional property rights for married women. 
It was simply reform facilitating access to funds to which they were already entitled. On the other hand, any reform threatening to interfere with private property rights is arguably controversial. In this case, reform attaching maintenance obligations to wages faced staunch opposition from trade unionists, for it threatened the sanctity of the paycheck. Analyzing the overall impact of the Married Women's Association is complex. During most of the time the Married Women's Association was active, there were few legislative reforms, but there had been a major shift in perspective about women's legal status in marriage. As the Married Women's Association observed in 1964, the language of partnership had slipped into the vocabulary, which they saw themselves as having contributed to. We have created by propaganda and agitation a public opinion that marriage is a partnership. To appreciate the importance of the Married Women's Association, therefore, we need to change our understanding of what success in the context of law reform looks like. For failures can be precursors to successes. Orthodox accounts of law reform record the bills that have passed and the cases that have been won. But the Married Women's Association viewed their own success in different terms. In one executive committee report, they described their work as being more notable for its ricochets than its bullseyes. The bullseyes are marked clearly by a new statute or precedent. The ricochets are the ostensible failures that did, in fact, leave their mark. The Married Women's Association didn't have many of the former bullseyes to point to, noting instead, Experience has taught us not to expect the bullseyes, but to view with satisfaction such ricochets as have furthered our cause. This perspective is vital when understanding feminist impact upon law reform. As Married Women's Association Chair Dora Russell argued, You can't just look at a women's progress in terms of laws and acts. Instead, you have to look at the area of relationships where women have been influential. And there, you will see that there have been enormous changes. The Married Women's Association's Bill for Equal Partnership in Marriage is a clear example of this. So their bill, in its various drafts, sought to implement what the Law Commission referred to more broadly as a genuine law of family property. This, as we saw in earlier episodes, was a framework of property ownership that applied during marriage rather than on separation. The bill was repeatedly redrafted and renamed throughout the 1940s, 50s, 60s and 70s and was never sponsored in Parliament. But its influence can be traced in a few important developments. As we saw, for instance, in the previous episode, in the important role it played in divorce and its financial consequences. You'll recall that divorce reform was delayed in the 1960s so that the financial consequences could be looked at more closely and that there was a bill that came from Edward Bishop that held up the passage of this divorce reform and prompted the Law Commission to act more quickly and address those financial consequences sooner. What many don't know, however, is the Married Women's Association's role in this 
and how the bill that came from Edward Bishop, in fact, originated from the group. What does this tell us? Well, the Married Women's Association story is perhaps best described in the words of their own aforementioned metaphor as a series of ricochets. Looking more closely at these ricochets and failed attempts at reform uncovers further evidence that law is not a neutral arbiter, progress does not happen naturally, and institutions are not solely responsible for change. And this has implications for family law reform today. The association's attempts to translate equality into a distinctive legal framework give us interesting insights into marriage law reform both then and now. By focusing on the idea of equality and difference, and by refusing to use men as yardsticks, the Married Women's Association was emphasising questions over how to value unpaid care and domestic labour in the home. These questions mattered to the wife who had no separate income. But What about now, when the 1950s housewife is no longer representative? Well, for many reasons, the position of the spouse doing most of the unpaid work in the home is very different today. Yet, the broader problems of inequality still exist today, albeit in a different social context. There's still a gulf in financial outcomes for spouses on divorce, which is divided on gender lines. The issue of pension provision still creates and reinforces significant financial inequalities between spouses. Statistics show that women are still left significantly poorer than men when their marriage is broken down. Mothers are still more likely to make career sacrifices than fathers. Dismissing these statistics as simply reflecting women's choice becomes difficult when the price of childcare continues to rise to the extent that employment often reaps no financial gain. In the UK, we are in the position that for the first time in at least 30 years, fewer women are able to go back to work and more women are dropping out of the labour market as a result of the cost of childcare. This is a stark reminder that modern marriage still has echoes of the past. The message that women work for free inside the home endures. There are other inequalities that didn't arise when the Married Women's Association was active. For example, home working has now taken on a new meaning since 2020. The boundaries between public and private are drawn in new ways and the definition of women's work in the home isn't limited to housework any longer. Indeed, recent data suggests inequalities have worsened during the COVID-19 pandemic and have taken a tremendous toll on women with families, both married and unmarried. Taking all of this into account, while it's no longer seen as outlandish to demand equality between husband and wife as it once was when it was advocated by the Married Women's Association in the 1940s and 50s, it's quite another thing to achieve that equality substantively. The story of the Married Women's Association is one way to understand why this is the case. Exploring how the association furthered the idea of equal partnership helps show why addressing pervasive gendered inequalities within marriage continues to be so difficult. The association's campaigns have informed debates that have been repeated throughout the 20th century and into the 21st. Wages for housework, equal division of property and divorce, women's pension rights, 
Thus, by examining the detail of the Married Women's Association's campaigns for equal partnership in marriage, it's possible to see both how equal marriage law is now and the inequalities that persist. And so the Married Women's Association's attempts to reform law shouldn't be relegated to an obscure corner of family law history. Far from it. Many of the debates the association started are still very relevant today. Yet, Married Women's Association members didn't appear to seek a historical legacy. Speaking about his grandmother, Edith Summerskill, Ben Summerskill told me that. She would have just taken the view of we get what we want, whose fingerprints are on it doesn't really, doesn't really matter. But just because the Married Women's Association was small and relatively arcane doesn't mean it was unimportant. As historian Professor Katrina Beaumont told me. Definitely a smaller pressure group, so a group that perhaps has 100 members or less, is able to move and react much more swiftly to, to change. And I think size is advantageous to these groups in particular when they're at their largest, which is in the mid to late 1930s and then into the, the um, 1940s and 50s. And then they do start to decline, so their memberships start to fall and age as we go into, as um, you enter the late 1950s and into the 1960s. That's one of the reasons why perhaps they, their, their, their legacy has been overlooked because they weren't able to make the same media impact as say the women's liberation movement was able to make um, in the 1960s. But we should be careful as historians because just because an organization isn't perhaps as noisy as another group or as visible as another group, it doesn't necessarily mean that they aren't actually doing as equally important work as other groups that are better known. We do need to be careful about this and about how we understand the history of law reform and women's rights too. Change doesn't just happen gradually. And just because we don't know all about the tireless work of the agitators behind the scenes doesn't mean that they weren't there. The Married Women's Association was one of many women's rights groups who were simultaneously working to improve women's lot throughout the 20th century. We might not know as much about them as the militant suffragettes, but this does not mean we shouldn't, for the little visible imprint they have left upon history, in fact, has real significance for us all today. Thank you for listening to Quiet Revolutionaries, presented and written by me, Dr. Sharon Thompson, produced by Ed Townend, and with voice acting by Lynn Horan Russell Sandberg. Special thanks to the Socio-Legal Studies Association for funding this project, the Women's Library, the National Archives, and all of the wonderful people who agreed to be interviewed about the Married Women's Association. For further information, visit marriedwomensassociation.co.uk, where you can find photos of the people mentioned in this podcast and documents from the archives. My book, Quiet Revolutionaries, which includes a foreword written by Lady Heal, is out now.